Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Clash Limited does not promote any hosts or guests' individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening. My name is Dr. Richard Selznick, and I want to welcome you to School Struggles. I am proud to be a part of the Coffee Clatch team, and it's on School Struggles that we talk about a range of topics, including learning disabilities, dyslexia, special education, ADHD, and a whole host of other interesting topics that affect your child. I am a child psychologist and the director of the Cooper Learning Center, which is a part of the Department of Pediatrics, Cooper University Healthcare, and we're located in Voorhees, New Jersey. I am the author of two books, both published by Sentient Publications, the first one called The Shutdown Learner, Helping Your Academically Discouraged Child, and the more recently published book called School Struggles. And you can learn more about these at my website, which is www.shutdownlearner.com. And it's the goal of this radio show that um, we talk in down-to-earth plain language for parents to help them understand their kids better. And you can hear previous episodes of School Struggles on www.thecoffeeclutch.com. That's the coffee and K-L-A-T-C-H.com. And I, I can think of no one who is more down-to-earth in his approach than uh, my guest tonight, John Rosemond. And uh, John, I've been tracking John for many years now. John is a family psychologist. I'm reading uh, his bio on his new book, is who has directed mental health programs and been in full-time private practice working with families and children. Since 1990, he has devoted his time to speaking and writing. John Roseman's weekly syndicated parenting column now appears in some 250 newspapers, and he has managed to write 15 best-selling books on parenting and the family. He is one of the busiest and most popular speakers in the field, giving more than 200 talks a year to parent and professional groups nationwide. He and his wife of 39 years, Willie, have two grown children and six well-behaved grandchildren, although I saw on the inside of the book that I think there are seven now, John. Is that correct? Yeah, there are seven. We've, we've, uh, that, yeah, that needs to be updated. It's about seven yeah, years behind the seven, curve. Seven yeah, we've got uh, seven grandkids who have been married 46 years. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Congratulations. I, I just want to Thank say you. to the audience, to the audience uh, I've recommended John's books over the years 
Some of the ones that I have, I'm very familiar with are his six-point plan for raising happy and healthy children, which has been revised. It's called the New Six-Point Plan. I also know his book called Parent Power, which is very good, and Ending the Homework Hassle. So, you know, he, he has lots of provocative titles, and he's never been shy in sharing his opinion. So we're, I'm looking forward to a rocking and rolling talk right now. So welcome, John. Thank you, Richard, for inviting me on the show. I really appreciate it. It's, it's my pleasure. And John's new book, which I think it just came out, right, John? Uh, appear, uh, began appearing in bookstores this past week, yes. Yeah, it's called the John Roseman's Fail-Safe Formula for Helping Your Child Succeed in School. So I thought we would talk a little bit just to get a few, you know, I, I went through the book. It's it's very interesting. It, it continues many of the themes that John has developed over the years in terms of how parents should be looking at their child's school issues. Um, and he he warned me on the front end as we were chatting. He said, you know, Richard, I'm, you know, I don't take the the popular psychological view. And I said, John, I've been reading it for a long time, so I I understand that. Um, Talk to us. I, I just thought we get into the idea of homework to start with. Um, you have said before, and saying in the new in the new one about you've, you know, many people question the value of homework, but you have always been a proponent of homework. Could you could you comment on that? Elaborate on that? Well, I think you know, properly managed um, homework provides a child with. Uh, uh, experiences, learning experiences that are over and above the experience of simply practicing academics. Again, the operative phrase is properly managed by the child's parents. The child learns personal responsibility. The child learns to perseverate in the face of uh, difficulty. The child uh, learns uh, various problem-solving skills. There are, and I list them in Ending the Homework Castle, the previous iteration and much smaller iteration of the new book, Helping Your Child Succeed in School, The Seven Hidden Values of of Homework. Um, and, and to me, Richard, it's, it's uh, less important, and this is the traditional view, it's less important that the child master the academic content at a certain level of excellence than it is that the child uh, acquire these hidden values, responsibility, perseveration, et cetera, et cetera, in the course of doing his homework. Those hidden values are going to be, in the final analysis, overall much more valuable to his life journey than the specifics of the academic content that he's assigned. For example, most of our listeners will uh, agree uh, they all took uh, algebra in high school. Very few of our listeners are using algebra today in their lives to any degree. Most of our listeners would say that they learned, uh, uh, let's say, the history of Western civilization. And while that's a valuable topic, I, I would argue, you know, most people are not in their in their everyday lives relying on knowledge of uh, Western civilization 
in order to get through the day, um, professionally or personally. So in the final analysis, the academic content, with some exceptions, is, in my estimation, um, less important than these other values that homework can import. It's funny. I, I have referred, when I talk to parents, about what I call the hidden agenda of school. <laughs> Maybe that's a more negative way of putting it, Not less about homework, but I'm broadening it out. And I think that you might uh, support some of these ideas that, you know, learning to get along with others, uh, you know, learning how to communicate better, uh, showing up on time, which is tied into the, some of your homework ideas. But there's, that there's an underneath, uh, whether they're values or they're things in, in about school that, you know, are not directly taught, but that somehow need are, are part of what it's all about. Would you comment on that? Yeah, I would comment on that, and I'm, I, I, I would agree with that. And unfortunately, Richard, we our parenting culture in America has evolved to a very um, unfortunate present point where parents seem fixated to the point of obsessed with their children's accomplishment in school. But one of the things that I uh, tell my audiences all over the country is that my mother, who eventually obtained a Ph.D. in the sciences, uh, a very, very intelligent person whose second marriage was to a man with two Ph.D.s. So I grew up in a, in a very educationally... Uh, academic household. Both my mother and stepfather taught in universities and uh, their entire lives and uh, uh, their entire professional lives. My mother really didn't care what grades I made in school. She expected me to do my best. She did not care what best was. If best had been a C in any given subject, my mother would have been perfectly content with that and would have done, by the way, nothing in the way of helping me uh, artificially improve my grades. So in, um, in she a sense, would have, in, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, she would have, uh, you know, let a C be a C. She would have, right. an, uh, an honest C, just right. as well like, as she let an A be an A. Yeah. Right, like like you got an honest C, you got a, 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 a an earned C, so to speak. Right, and, and today's parents are, I think, generally speaking, unwilling to let that happen. Um, the female parent in America has very unfortunately allowed herself to become trapped in the notion that the measure of a mother is in some weird, perverse way um, dependent upon her child's achievement in school. And so the sort of the subtext of female mother culture in America, mother culture in America is the mother whose child makes the best grades is somehow the best mother. And my mother didn't subscribe to that. Women 60 years ago did not subscribe to that idea. And as a consequence, we're willing to let their children experience academic difficulty. We're willing to let their children fail. We're willing to let their children independently discover what they were good at and what they weren't very good at. What's what's the effect then of this fixation? You know what what's the you know it, with the parents being 
I think you talk about them being well-intentioned but overly involved. Like, what's the mm-hmm. what's the downside, so to speak? What's the fallout of that? Well, the level of involvement on the part of many parents these days, and, and I dare say, without trying, without meaning to insult our listeners, but people who listen to radio shows like this, people who read parenting books, people who read my article in newspapers, these are the people that I'm talking about. Um, they they tend, without intention, through their over-involvement uh, with their children in every area of their children's lives, not just academic, but social, recreational, and so on, um, to establish fundamentally codependency in the relationship between parent and child, which you and I both know is very handicapping to living a very maximum, a, a, a life that is uh, fulfilling to the greatest degree possible. And um, the, the the codependency really does strip the child of the ability to learn how to negotiate life on his own. Right, right. What, what Shakespeare um, called the slings and arrows, you know, the slings and arrows slings of our arrows of fortune. fortune, right? Yeah, I came to my mother. Here's a little anecdote. I came to my mother. I was in the fifth grade. Here I'm coming to this very brilliant PhD in the sciences at a time when women were not welcome in science departments. So right. you can appreciate how hard my yeah. mother had to work and how good she was. Uh, and I came to my mother, I was in the fifth grade, told her I couldn't figure out a math assignment. She looked at the book, flipped a couple of pages, said, uh, well, they're teaching it the same way they taught it to me, Uh slid the book back across the table to me and said, uh, I figured that out when I was your age. So can you. you. <laughs> and just absolutely yeah. right. w- would not even consider giving me any help with that. Hmm. And you know, I was very frustrated at the time, and I got angry at her. And I, right. I you know, stomped up to my room, stormy, right. uh, emotionally. But I look back on that, and I understand why she did it. And my mother's passed away, so so I silently thank my mother for those right. kinds of things where sure. you know she let me she let me experience that she and somebody once said, "Well, what if you hadn't been able to do it?" And I said, "Well, if I had not been able to do that assignment in math in the fifth grade, do yeah. you really think that that one assignment would have altered the course of my life? Of course, it would not have." And my mother understood that. Right. But so you hold today's you mother, hold that. Yeah. yeah. Today's mothers believe that they, they are responsible for this, the way I put it, uh, making sure their children excel at everything. Well, you can't. You How about the dads? How about the dads? What how, what do you see as the, uh, today's dad? Uh, what, what's your view of their role and involvement in all of this? Mm, the mother is so uh, anxious about children. Anxiety defines the micromanager. And all of this, you know, Richard, I, I'm not trying to insult our audience. I go around the country and I say the same thing from every podium I'm on. And, uh, you know, people are willing to sit there and listen to me. Uh, they they may be shocked at first and somewhat uncomfortable, but what I'm trying to do is help women liberate themselves from, from the confines of what I call the good mommy club. 
But right. back to your question, the the father in America today, his wife is micromanaging him in his role as father, just like she's micromanaging the kids. She's terrified that if she doesn't keep this constant vigilance over her child's life and every aspect of it and make sure that everything is okay, that uh, something terrible is going to go wrong, something apocalyptic. And she's afraid that if she allows her husband to participate equally in the childbearing process, that he is going to completely upset the apple cart that she's been arranging for the last however many years, and she's going to have to start all over again. And so the American father more or less is a bystander to the parenting process. He's along for the ride. And this is very unfortunate. David Blankenhorn, who is a uh, uh, sociologist, um, sort of a philosophical sociologist has said that most American children are growing up in fatherless homes. In other words, the influence of the father, even in a home where there is a male presence, an adult male presence, the influence of the father has become so minimized over the last few generations since I was a kid when the father's influence was was significant. Uh, that, in effect, the child is not growing up with uh, a role model that is projecting an influence of traditional masculine values. What about a very, very interesting point? I know we could spend the whole time just just on that one point, Um, but... What, what about the, the role of, which I, I can already anticipate your answer, but something that you've talked about and I kind of see in my work as well, sort of in some ways the tyranny or the role of, the tyranny of self-esteem, self-concept. What's your view of, you know, our over-fixation, as you might put it, with self-esteem and self-concept? Well, uh, here's my uh, here's my take on psychological parenting advice, which began coming out of the mental health community in the 1960s and uh, persuaded America to completely alter its childbearing practices. Uh, This advice was not based on any research whatsoever. It was a matter of whim. It was uh, snatched out of thin air. It was what uh, Michael Crichton, the late Michael Crichton, who was himself a scientist as well as an author, called consensus science, in other words, worthless, um, from a scientific perspective. Um, the research has now been done on the elements that constitute what I call postmodern psychological parenting. And in every single case, the research has found the theory that is behind postmodern psychological parenting, either lacking or completely bogus. The research has now found that high self-esteem is not a good thing, Um, that a person with high self-esteem, indeed, this is the mantra, feels good about himself. So what? (laughs) So so does a criminal. And uh, this is what the research has found, Richard, is that people with high self-esteem are highly prone to antisocial, very manipulative, narcissistic um, behavior. And uh, that these people are not good citizens. They're not good neighbors. Uh, They're in it for themselves. 
And we need to be raising children who uh, understand that the continuing strength of America depends on not on people who are in it for themselves, but people who are good neighbors, people who are paying attention to the needs of others and are willing to respond appropriately to the needs of others wherever those needs may be encountered in whatever context. We have not been raising children like this for two going on three generations. And a person my age, I'm 66, person, people my age see this very, very clearly. And it's very upsetting to us because we're the last generation of American children who grew up with an understanding of what America was and what it would take uh, from every generation to preserve this this beautiful but very fragile experiment in democracy. If the if high self-esteem can lead to certain problems in a sense, I mean, the converse of low self-esteem, someone who feels down on themselves or discouraged is not something that you would want to see in a child either, I would presume. Well, the opposite of high self-esteem is, is popularly thought to be low self-esteem, but actually those two concepts are not on the same continuum. The opposite, the legitimate opposite of high self-esteem is humility and modesty. It's an attitude of service. The research has has made clear people with high self-esteem, they want you to pay attention to them. People who are humble and modest, and this is not shyness, this is another misunderstanding. People who are humble and modest can be very outgoing. But people who are humble and modest are paying attention to other people. People with high self-esteem want you to serve them, do things for them. People who are humble and modest are looking for opportunities to do things for other people. So obviously, the cultural ideal, uh, especially in a culture that depends on the service ethic, uh, the cultural ideal is humility and modesty. And a lot of the problems that we are experiencing with today's youth, I think, stems directly to the popularity of this idea that high self-esteem is a good thing. I'll say to an audience, raise your hand right off the bat. You know, I do this little poll thing in in front of my uh, audiences across the country. I'll say, raise your hand if you think high self-esteem is a good thing. We should do everything we can to help children acquire it. So 95% of the people raise their hands. As I'm scanning the audience very quickly, I notice that people who are not raising their hands are older people. So then I say, put your hands down. Uh, You have a choice. You're moving into a new neighborhood. There are two houses for sale. One is next door to a person who has very high self-esteem. The other house is next door to a person who is humble and modest. How many of you are going to buy the house and they're equivalent houses. How many of you are going to buy the house next to the person with high self-esteem? No one raises a hand. And I make my point that at a common sense level, we all know that high self-esteem is a pig and a pope, that it was a bill of goods, that it was sold to us by the mental health community in the 1960s and 70s, again, out of whim, and uh, that uh, in the final analysis, it is not a cultural, culturally positive attribute. 
do you do you think that kids have changed over the years? There's always this kind of older generation view, of, you know, kids these days, or we've got trouble in River City kind of mentality about, you know, we're going, <laughs> you know what I mean? Where it's like, yeah, yeah. oh, those screen devices, oh, you know, Ryan, you know, like pool, you know, and in, in, in Music Man. I mean, you know, I did a parenting workshop a while ago, John, where I was talking about Facebook generation, right? And I pulled up mm-hmm. a bunch of quotes, and they were, you know quotes that said things like this current generation is the worst we've ever seen and and the girls are are you know running wild and they were like one was from Sophocles and one was from Peter the Hermit in 900 AD and you know uh-huh. is it is it the same as it always was John or are things in terms of ch- childhood fundamentally different because of the screens and electronics and everything else and what you're talking about what's your view of that well, you know, I think that uh, there is a tendency on the part of every generation to overly idealize itself and to look on succeeding generations with some degree of disdain and disappointment. But the difference in the contemporary era over the last three generations is that we can actually measure the deterioration in child mental health that has taken place since the 1960s. And it has been precipitous. And we can measure the increase in child violence that has taken place since the 1960s. And we now know through research that electronic devices like iPads and and computers and video games actually change the brain and alter brain development in a way that whether you believe in God or whether you believe nature did all this through evolution, that neither nature nor God uh, intended And so uh, we can look at all of this and and we can conclude rather objectively that the nature of the child has not changed, but the brain development of the child has changed as a result of exposure to electronics and the behavior of children and the mental health of children has drastically changed in a negative direction, primarily because of the weakening of our parenting skills not due to the fault of parents, but due to the fact that people were people fell under the sway of this uh, psychological theory based parenting paradigm that came out of the sixties. Do you do you um do you think that so so what would be your what would be your advice if you could in, in a sense in a nutshell, what's your what's your top advice relative to uh screens and and you know, the kids playing on their cell phones and, and video games, all that kind of thing. What are you telling parents these days? Well, I tell parents what the research clearly finds. Uh, the research, the, the major body of good research has been done by Jane Healy, a research psychologist yeah. at the University of California. And Healy, two books I would recommend to our listeners, Endangered Minds and Failure to Connect. They're a little academic, but they're worth wading through if you're interested. Yeah. Uh, Healy has uh, recommended, based on very, very good research, that children not have any exposure, none, zero, to screens until they are at least 10 years old. I say 12 because that's more in keeping with Piaget's model of brain development, which I think was intuitively brilliant. But 10, 12, I don't know that it makes a a huge difference. But Mm -hmm. the point is, you see kids in America today toddlers being entertained by iPads to keep them quiet in public places, Um, six-year-olds with cell phones. 
parents thinking that video games are benign. They are not benign. They shorten attentions and they increase the tendency toward impulsivity. They prevent the formation of sequential problem-solving skills. We all know this now. But the fact, the fact of the matter is the media is not going to give this great coverage because the media is highly dependent upon advertising from these very sources. And right. so you're not going to get the media saying, you know, uh, that um, that such and such a product, oh, and by the way, it's advertised uh, on our station. You're not going to get them to say anything negative about this product. Any news broadcaster who did that would be fired the next day by his boss um, because of complaint from an advertiser that's spending million dollars, a million dollars a year to advertise his product on that channel. So to find this stuff out, the uh, here's the good news. Any parent can go to the Internet and, and by Googling the proper words and trial and error Googling, discover all this information for themselves. You don't have to rely on the the, uh, the mainstream media to do this for you. It, it's it's I totally support uh, you know your recommendation of Jane Healy's books and it's funny that the term failure to connect I think that that's really on the money. I see that when I go out and say hello to the kids in the waiting room, where you know the child at five, six, seven, you know, sitting there on a screen on an iPad or a phone. And I say, oh, hi, Johnny, you know, whatever. And the kid doesn't even know I exist. I mean, there's, there's no yeah. eye contact. There's no, you know, that skill, that that skill of connection, that skill of of interaction is, you know, not taking place in that moment for sure. I walked into a restaurant, was in a restaurant with uh, my wife a couple of weeks ago, and seated uh, the table over from us was a young couple in their early 20s, I would estimate. And they were both sitting there texting on their cell phones. It was unbelievable. And they sat there silent, completely not talking to each other for at least 10 minutes. And then whatever conversation they had was very, well, you know, who are you texting and who am I texting? And so-and-so said this and so-and-so said that. They're, they're, you're absolutely right, Richard. This stuff is uh, is causing, um, I call it social autism, and it's this social disconnection that uh, these young people don't even realize that they are victims of because this is becoming this is becoming regarded as normalcy. Normal. In America. I, and listen, I yeah. see it in my own life. I, I I can hear my wife saying, "Put that phone away already." You know, my own. Huh. So I, I, I don't want to sound too. <laughs> Don't want to sound too hypocritical as we're talking here, you know? Oh, man. Um, what's your uh, – I have two, two – I know we're going to run out of time, so I knew this would go by very quickly. But you, if it, how do you – for parents out there, the, the idea of the parent consultant in managing homework, back to the homework, and what, what's this notion of parent consultant? Well, that the parent not be involved. And by, and by the way, this involvement thing, a parent should be involved in homework, uh, was sold in the 1970s as the result of research that had nothing to do with the uh, the recommendation at all. It, it was uh, research that was misinterpreted by America's educators. And, um, and the recommendation, parents should be involved with homework, came out of this research. Uh, very wrongly so. The research 
now has found that parents who do not help with homework have children who, regardless of IQ and ability level, perform optimally in school. And uh, so, you know, I've been saying this for uh, 20 years now through my newspaper column, over 20 years and my books and so on and so forth. So finally, you know, I feel I feel wonderful that the research has justified what I've been saying. But it's common sense that the parent who is just simply there to give occasional assistance when absolutely necessary, not on demand, but when absolutely necessary in the parent's judgment, not simply because the child asked, but in the parent's judgment, the child would use a li- you know some suggestions, a little bit of direction, but parents should never problem solve for a child. That should be totally up to the child in question. So, so what, what about the kids that I see a lot, and I'm not a, a quick labeler. I, I've always gone against the the, uh, the tide as well. That you know, in terms of the rapid labeling of childhood, but mm-hmm. I do find and this was in my first book, in Shutdown Learner, what it was about was really primarily about kids with reading disabilities. And Mm -hmm. I see so many of these poor kids, meaning given work that they truly can't handle, worksheets, Mm -hmm. I I call it WBD, worksheet burnout disorder, where they're they're given entirely, it's like they're being asked to lift lift 20-pound weights when they maybe can lift 5 pounds at best. What about those kids, John? Well, uh, yeah, I I completely agree with you, Richard, and, and it raises you know another can of worms, and and that is, you know, the obsession that America's public schools especially have today with test outcomes, and uh, so they're loading kids up with homework assignments, uh, irrespective of ability, irrespective of um, uh, of of even need. And uh, this is the kind of thing that occurs. And, and by the way, the research clearly indicates that at a certain point um, of homework assignment, that kids actually get turned off to school. And the end result is a kid who's unmotivated, turned off and apathetic in the classroom. Right. He just, uh, you know, he's totally burned out academically by the time he's in the fourth right. or fifth grade. Right. And from that point on, is an underachiever. And then he gets labeled with a learning disability because he's an underachiever. And nobody understands that this stuff is systemic to the system. You know, it's... it's, uh, it's um, what about, And what about yeah. those kids who truly have difficulties, though, where they, you know, they have legitimate reading problems, legitimate writing problems? How do, how, how, what's, I would imagine that those kids need a whole lot more parental support than what you tend to recommend. I don't recommend that parents provide the support because parents okay. are too emotionally involved. I recommend right. tutoring. I recommend okay. tutoring centers, private tutors. Right. I recommend third parties because these are people yeah. who can, I think, more objectively assess what those kids uh, truly need and can uh, more effectively provide it because of their training. But if, they, but if the child can't handle the day-to-dayness of, of what's being given to them, and, you know, they're not going to be getting tutored every day. Uh, they need some supports, right? Well, Richard, you and I may disagree on this, but I feel like, um, you know, the, the if, if, if you're going to be driven by short-term objectives, every day's assignments, that's one thing. 
that parent, and this is something I talk about all the time, that sometimes you have to sacrifice short-term objectives in order to accomplish long-term objectives. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult for parents these days to understand that because we live in an instant gratification, short-term oriented uh, culture. And so for me to say to parents, look, you know, there may be long-term value in you not helping with homework even though your child needs to help, okay, even yeah. though he needs it, for him to go through a struggle. Now, you have to be very, very selective and judicious about all this. But to say just because a child has some difficulty with an assignment on Wednesday means the, and, and the kid has gotten a label means the parents are responsible for providing whatever help is needed to help the child successfully complete the homework assignment I don't, I don't think that that is a rule of thumb. I think that that may be sometimes the case. It also may be sometimes the case that it's better for the parents to just look at the child and say, well, you know, throughout life there will be problems that uh, we don't solve. And it's time that you came to grips with the fact that this may be a problem area that you're going to have some difficulty with, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my my pitch is usually tied into what I see as an old-school concept of instructional levels, independent instructional frustration levels. That it's, you know, if if the child is given material that's fundamentally in their instructional level, you know, that is reasonably managed by them, then that's fine. It's it's when they're given too much frustration-level work that, that that's where I, you know, take a little bit of maybe a different tact on this. Yeah, frustration for the point of frustration is not right. good. You, you and I would both agree on that. Yeah. All right, last provocative question. <laughs> All right, yeah. let's get to the big one. Do you ever see uh, a medication as ever? I mean, ever is a wrong word, but do you ever see a role for medication with kids with, with attention problems? Uh, kids are off task. What's your What's your take on that? Uh, no, I don't ever see uh, a situation where. Uh, psychiatric medication is appropriate for a child. And we could do a whole program on this, Richard. I might welcome that. You know, John, it's a a heck of a way to end a program because it's the most provocative (laughs) question you have. Well, you know. know, I'm not going to be around the bush. Listen, (laughs) I always have enjoyed your take on things and your books, so I don't I didn't mean to throw your curveball at the end. So that gives us then an opportunity to get together again in the future. We'll just and maybe we'll just talk about that topic. Well I'd love to. I'd love to. There's a lot of research on this that people are not aware of and that okay. people need to educate themselves about. So I'd I'd love to further that cause. I, I will talk to the producer about it. Now John, why don't you give people your um your contact information, your website, that kind of, how they can get a hold of you. Sure, the website, I'll, I'll just get that. It's uh, Everything else is on there. It's uh, John, okay. J-O-H-N, Rosemond, R-O-S-E-M-O-N-D, johnrosemond.com. And uh, everything's on there. So uh, Yeah, and I, and I get John's, I get John's email. He sends out interesting uh, parenting co- uh, columns and, and articles on a, I think it's a weekly basis at this point, John. Uh, so I get them in my inbox. And yeah, I send them out weekly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I would I would encourage people to get a hold of his John's books and to visit the website. John, I want to really thank you. I I knew we would have fun. I hope you did. 
Yeah, I did. It's a good conversation. I'll look forward to doing this again with yours. Thanks, thanks, Johnny. I, I look forward to that as well. And again, I want to thank people for listening. Uh, visit my website, theshutdownlearner.com, as well as thecoffeeclutch.com, and support Coffee Clutch's sponsors. And I want to thank everyone for listening, and take care, and good night. Thanks, John. Thank you. Take care. Good night. Bye.